moving on to chapter 37. And as we go into chapter 37, we are entering into the life of Joseph. The life of Joseph. This is a, a, a part of the Bible that shows us so many things about the heart of God, about interactions with individuals, dynamics in family, and how when we truly trust God and allow him to avenge us, he works things out in such a way that he is glorified and no blood is required at our hands. All right. So this is important for us to see the life of Joseph, what happens and how God is staying faithful to the promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right, so you're with me. You're still with me. Breathe and take your notes. All right, sink yourself into the narrative of the Bible and let's get into the life of Joseph. So Jacob is dwelling in the land where his father was a stranger. He's dwelling in the land of Canaan. And his son, Joseph, remember this is his 11th child and Rachel's firstborn, the, the, the wife that he loved. And well, she's no longer alive. And Joseph is 17 years old. Joseph was a child that was much desired. Rachel wanted a child. Jo Jacob wanted to give her a child because she was barren for many, many years. But the timing of Joseph's birth was by God's design. I wish I had the time to go into that with you, just to let you know and to encourage you that sometimes it looks like you're barren or that you're waiting forever, forever, forever for God's promise to come to pass. But his timing is perfect because he's not just thinking about you and your feelings in this moment, although he cares for you deeply, but he's thinking of the overall plan and how all the pieces work together. So Joseph did not come before the timing of God. He came exactly when God wanted him to be born, although Rachel longed for him for many years. But this was the timing of God because of the role that Joseph had to play in this, um, this whole scenario. He came when, when Jacob was an old man, and Jacob even calls him the child of my old age. And that leads him to have extreme fondness for Joseph, and he becomes Jacob's favorite, a clear favorite, so much so that his brothers can't stand him. So especially when you see there are 12 boys in a family, right? You're going to have a lot of rivalry and competition and, and vying for the father's attention and affection. So for Joseph, the story is about to get really, really hard for him because his brothers can't stand him. And he also, he reports his brother's bad behavior to his father's his father. So as the brothers are out doing whatever they're doing, Jake, uh, Joseph is telling Jacob what they're doing. It's making him even more unpopular with his brothers. So he is the loved of Jacob. And Jacob really, he really puts the fuel on the fire because he gives Joseph a coat of many colors. Now, this coat signified a position of favor, all right? A very princely standing and a birthright. And it was a dramatic way of saying that Joseph was favored and he was going to receive more than all of his brothers. Now, something about this tunic that you should know is that those 
Everyone had a coat at that time. Everyone had a tunic, but those who worked in the fields could not have a tunic down to their ankles. So there would be shorter uh, above the knee and the material would be more durable because they'd be working outside, right? And um, it would probably be just one, one color. Nothing to, to write home about, nothing to show off about. It was a working man's garment. Everybody had one. But Joseph's own was different because his extended, uh, historians say it's extended to his ankle. So he's not out in the fields or he's not shepherding the sheep. This is something like a prince would wear. And because it had many colors, the coat was expensive, right? This was a very um, significant garment and set him apart from the rest. It was something that showed his privilege, his status, and so why all of his brothers were doing hard labor, Joseph was probably more around the father at home, and um, his brothers hated him for it. His brothers just hated it for it. And it was to the point, they could not even speak nicely to him because of how much they hated him. And in verses five to seven, we read this. Now Joseph had a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. So he tells his brother this dream, all right? Now, what's significant is that they're in the field, and the sheaves of wheat, so we're talking about wheat, they, the 11 paid homage to the one and all of the brothers, all the older brothers bowed down to Joseph. So from this dream, we're seeing that he has a position of status over his brother and has something to do with food, with grain, with wheat, because that was in the dream. Let's go on because not only does Joseph have one dream, he has another. In verses 9 to 11, we read that he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look. I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him, right? So Jacob rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So the first dream, it was just his brothers bowing down to him in, in the stalks of wheat. But now we have the entire family bowing down to, to Joseph. Let me put a little pin in there for a second because it's he says Jacob says you're me and your mother and your brothers and in the chapter we just read it says that Rachel died so we there are differences interpretations some historians say that the mother that that they're referring to is um, Rachel's handmaiden Bilhah who was like a surrogate mother to Joseph after Rachel died right so that's one interpretation and another another interpretation is that um, this is not in strict chronological order so perhaps Joseph his his mother had not died as yet this portion seems to backtrack a little bit either way what is represented here you see that everybody in the family even those who are supposed to be above Joseph is going to bow down to Joseph and pay him homage. All right. So this is important. Now, this is 
something that's going to instigate more hatred for the brothers. They really can't stand him. Um, they see the dreams. They see how it's interpreted. Even the father understands what it means. And so one day they're out feeding the sheep in, um, in the fields. And Joseph is sent by Israel, his father, Israel, Jacob, right? Remember to meet them. So the father sends him to go and check on the brothers, make sure everything is okay with them. And he's looking for them. And he finally finds them in a place called Dothan. And here's what happens, right? They see the dreamer coming, the brothers, and they call him, oh, the dreamer is coming. They're mocking him. And just the hatred, because it has not been dealt with, because it has not been checked, it just starts to arise to the point where they decide we're going to kill him. They make this plan to kill Joseph. But Reuben, who is the firstborn, he hears of the plan and he intervenes. And I want to read a couple of verses to let you know what he says. He says, listen, let us not kill him, right? Shed no blood, but let's cast him into the pit, which is in the wilderness. And do not lay a hand on him. So they decide, okay, we'll go with Reuben's plan. We won't kill him, but we'll put him in a pit. So they strip him of his, his famous coat and they drop him into a pit. And the pit was empty, as the Bible says, and there was no water in it. And interestingly enough, I when I read this, again, I was like, wow, it just shows you the heart of mankind because they drop him in the pit and then they go and eat. They sit down to a meal. So this is just to let you know how hard their hearts had become towards Joseph and also towards their father. They're doing something they know that's going to bring their father great grief. So in all of this, the family dynamics is just horrible, right? But here's what happens. And we start to see how the, the story moves forward. After they sat down to eat their meal, they lift up their eyes and they saw a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels. And this company was going to carry down their commodities to Egypt. So now the next brother, Judah, which is the fourth born, remember we said, listen up for his name. He says to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother and flesh. And the brother's like, all right, that's a good plan. So they go and they take Joseph out of the pit and they sell him to the company of Ishmaelites who are going into Egypt. They sell him as a slave. And then what they do is they get um, a baby goat and they kill it and dip the, the coat of Joseph into the blood and take that home to their father, Jacob. And they say to Jacob, you know, uh, do you know this coat? <laughs> of course, Jacob's going to know the coat. They should know it too. And um, when jo Jacob sees it, he is grieved. He's grieved so badly that Joseph is dead, his favorite, the son of his favorite wife. And um, he grieves so badly that no one can comfort him. No one can comfort. He's in deep, deep despair. So the, the company of Ishmaelites, the Midianites, they have gone to Egypt and they sell Joseph to Potiphar. He's an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. So historians say that he was the captain or the head of the Pharaoh's personal security group. If you've done any research or any reading into ancient Egypt, you will know that it was a force to be reckoned with. There was such a great amount of wealth in the land and Pharaoh was like the most 
powerful king on the earth. And so his guard, the, um, the captain of his guard, Potiphar, he was close to Pharaoh and held a very important position. And Joseph is sold into his house, into Potiphar's house. Now remember, he's going from a son of position and privilege and all of that to be a slave. He's going from uh, the land of his family with their customs, with their God, with their family into Egypt, which he knows nothing about the culture, doesn't know the language, doesn't understand how it functions. This is going to be such a culture shock for Joseph. Such a culture shock for Joseph. And how he handles these hardships will let us know about his character. So we will see him continue on as he works in the house of Potiphar. But before I continue on to tell you a little bit more what happens to to um, Joseph, I want to interject as the Bible does with chapter 38 that tells us more about Judah. We just heard Judah tell his brothers, listen, don't kill Joseph. Let's sell him to the Midianites. And they listen to him. Uh, but the Bible interjects here a story about Judah that we need to know. All right. So Judah, of course, these these are men that have gone older and um, he is J Jacob's fourth born. He marries a woman, Shua, and she's a Canaanite woman. All right. So remember, they're not supposed to intermarry, but he does. And he marries this woman is an ungodly, unwise marriage. Um, and she gives him or gives birth to three sons, Ur, Onan and Shelah. God has already said he does not want them to intermarry with the Canaanites. And we're seeing that because they are in the land, the Canaanite neighbors, they're, they're starting to infiltrate the family, even though God said no, right? And when they come in with their customs, it starts to corrupt the thinking of the family of Israel. So Ur, the firstborn of Judah, he gets married to a woman named Tamar. Now, Ur, the Bible says, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. He was wicked, the Lord killed him. So now, Tamar, she is a widow. So the second son, Onan, was supposed to marry her so that he would carry on the name and the legacy of the brother. And so this is a, a custom that we'll learn more about in a few more books later on. But it is a, a custom that was put in there so that, you know, the name of this first son would be carried on. But also the, the wife would have someone to care for her later on. If not, she would just be a dis destitute widow. So this is a thing set up for, for the benefit of the son who died and also for the wife. He is called now to marry Tamar. He goes into her and he sleeps with her, but he basically just uses her because he spills his seed or his sperm on the ground, ensuring that she cannot get pregnant. This displeases God and he kills Onan as well. This was not what was supposed to happen. Onan was supposed to let her have children by him and raise up the children in the name of the older son and make sure that everything carried on. But he just basically uses her for sexual gratification and God is displeased and kills her. Verse 11 says this to us. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. 
For he said, lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's home. So basically what he does, Judah sends her back to her father's home. What she was supposed to do is give the last son to her because there was another son. But Judah's like, just in case this son dies as well, I'm not doing that. So he actually vows that he would um, give this, the last son to Tamar as the custom said that he should, but he continually delays the fulfillment of his dishonest promise. So he doesn't do it in the time that he should. And now Judah's wife dies, Sheila is grown. And Tamar hasn't received him as a husband. So basically, Judah has not fulfilled what his vow to her. So she devises a plan. She's mourning. She's in mourning because she's a widow. And she takes off her widow's clothing and she covers her face with a veil and wraps herself and sits in an open place. And this is a place where it's between cities and prostitutes sit there at times. And so Judah is going in a certain direction and he meets Tamar dressed as a prostitute, but he doesn't know that it's her. And she is sitting there and she's just waiting for him. <laughs> she's waiting. She knows he's heading in this direction and she's waiting for him. So he meets her and, you know, he wants to sleep with her and they negotiate a price. What's the price for this service? They agree on a young goat. And to make sure that he pays the young goat, she wants to have some kind of sec security. And so she asks him for his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, these are major things because a signet was a form of identification used to authenticate um, legal documents. It was something that once you had, you used that to ratify, to, to prove that this is yours, this is what you have agreed to. And so this is not something that should be lost or used lightly. But whatever the reason, we don't know if the lust is driving him, Judah gives her these, um, these signs, these tokens. So that when, when he comes back again and he brings the young goat, he will retrieve them from her. So they sleep with each other and listen, she gets pregnant. She gets pregnant. After their interaction, their encounter, she takes off the prostitute clothes and goes back into her regular clothing and she resumes normal life. The, one of the friends of Judah goes with the young goat, right, to meet her in the place where she was to give her what uh, Judah had promised so that she, he could take what Judah had given her to hold in its stead. But when he gets there, she is nowhere to be found because remember, she's gone back to her regular life. And so she doesn't get the goat, but she has those important items from Judah. Well, hear this. Three months, about approximately three months later, the Bible tells us that Judah is told that his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And because he knows he has not given his son to her, it's a child by harlotry. So basically she's out there sleeping with someone out of marriage and gets pregnant. So because that is also a no-no, he says, bring her to me and she's going to be burned. So she's going to get a harsh punishment for doing this deed. 
Read 20 verses 25 and 26 of this chapter, chapter 38. Here's what it says. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Sheila, my son. And he never knew her again. So he realizes that, that those are his children. Tamar gives birth to twins. And the first one is Perez. And the second born is uh, Zara. And the first one, Perez, he's actually listed in the genealogy of Jesus. So Perez's mother is Tamar, and she slept with her father-in-law to have this son. Okay, so look what we learn about Judah. He wasn't always upright. He didn't always do the right things. And it's important to see that it did not disqualify him from being used by God much, much later on, which we will learn. But just letting you know, look at what happened in his life and what came out of it. Mm -hmm.